Neil, uh, Neil McGregor, welcome to Time Team. So I think you were the director of the British Museum for 13 years, something yes. like that? From, from 2002 to 2015, yes. Extraordinary. And before that, the National Gallery, I think? Yes. So it was a big shift moving from European paintings to world archaeology and world cultures. Um, because the one thing the British Museum didn't have, doesn't have, is the only thing that I know anything about, which was European painting. So what was good about it was that I was equally ignorant about every part of the museum. And, uh, but equally, and therefore, therefore equally curious about it all and able to, and able to, this wonderful privilege of learning that collection with experts on hand and being tutored in the collection. Uh, it was wonderful, completely wonderful. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a total, every day was an education. I've recently had a conversation with John Preston, who wrote The Dig, and whose aunt Peggy Piggott um, actually found some of those wonderful objects. And amazingly, I hadn't realised this until I did a little bit of research, that you were there and um, managed that new the, the transition of the objects, that amazing new display, because I think John said when he went to see uh, the old display, he rather felt it was a bit up a side corridor or something. I mean, that must have been an amazing thing to have in front of you. And, and, and how long did it take? And what were the challenges of this, you know, world famous set of objects? Well, it was, it was one of us. Exciting, isn't it? Mean, working in the British Museum is a privilege. You know what it's like to work with old things, with great things. Um, and working with the Sutton Who treasure was an astonishing challenge and privilege. I, of course, the lucky thing about being director is that you don't really do much of the work. You have real experts, gifted colleagues who do that, who know about it. Um, so my job was working with them um, and trying to decide how the Sutton Who treasure, that extraordinary group of objects, fitted into a much bigger story of Europe uh, at that moment, what you know, we call the Dark Ages. And that was a wonderful opportunity because it allowed us not just to make sure that we could present the objects well-lit, well-labeled, drawing on the most recent research, actually show how they connected to the rest of the world. So the area where I was most involved was in those conversations. They were fascinating because what we were able eventually to do was to display it, the treasure, at the end of the Roman Britain gallery, exactly where it should be. So you come out of Roman Britain and then you're into Sutton Hill. But it's also the gallery of a crossroads and that let us go to who came out of a Roman inheritance. There was Byzantine material, of course, in it, coins from Byzantium, and links to the Middle East. So you go from the Sutton Hoo Gallery towards the Eastern Mediterranean and the world of Islam. And you also go from the Sutton Hoo Gallery into the later Middle Ages. So we were able to put those collections in the context of Roman Britain, of the collection from Scandinavia, from the rest of Britain, and from the Eastern Mediterranean, and then the later world. And that was the most thrilling thing, because you realize that the real power of that collection, as of the Sutton Who objects as a collection together, is that they are putting this world together. Um, the different worlds of Northern Europe, Scandinavian, British, and Roman, and Eastern Mediterranean, and it's all there. And that idea of one, one collection, one ship, that holds really the whole of European history at that moment together, um, and to be able to show that to the visitor, I think make it fairly easy for the visitor to grasp 
because as you walk through, I think almost unconsciously you're taking what's going on. That was the first thing. The second thing was how could we, was it possible to give some idea of the fact that this had been found in a, in a ship? How could you, so creating a huge case with the lines of a ship on it, trying to give some idea where in the ship the things were and putting them in the case in something like the same place. It, it was a really challenging design debate and that was fascinating. And visitors will all of their own view on how well that works. Um, and then finally, and this, uh, I, I was thinking about this very much when I was looking at the, the recent film of the, of the dig. Um, my young expert colleagues, um, they were very brilliant, were very keen that the British Museum should, in this new presentation, fully honour the work done by uh, Mr. Brown, as we see in the film, um, and, of course, the generosity of the pretty family. And I hope that has been properly done because the British Museum was, I think, rather high-handed in its approach to this amateur archaeologist of the day to realise what a huge achievement his was. And also, one can't ever, I think, adequately acknowledge the generosity of Mrs Pretty. So what, what I found fascinating about it, from my point of view, not being um, a, a specialist of that period at all, um, was the bigger story that Sutton who was part of, and also what that discovery in 1939 meant, uh, the people who made it possible, I mean, two extraordinary people. And uh, it, I think the film honours those two people very, very well. Which of the Sutton Who objects did you most find yourself staring at and saying, my goodness, this is, this is exceptional? Which, which of those objects most caught your attention? Well, I suppose very conventionally, it would simply be the belt buckle. <laughs> Um, and the the quality of that work and the sheer beauty of it, but the skill and w realizing not just you know, where does the gold come from, where do the stones come from, and again that takes you into a, a wide, a wonderful network. Um, so, but because in that object there is something of supreme accomplishment, but also a demonstration of the extent to which humans have always struggled to make beautiful things and brought things from far away to put them together into an object of beauty. Um, and that, that is it's something you find across the British Museum, but something that fascinated me was you could find comparable objects in all cultures. So that object, I think for me, was the one that I kept going back around trying to construct from the, the, the little I knew, but from what I could gather from my colleagues, what kind of power system, what kind of court, to use a, an anachronistic word, was there in East Anglia at that moment? What, what was it like to be out? And what did it mean? How did, that, how did that community, that society work, that one person was able to command this resource? And what I love about the Sutton Who uh, collection is that, in a way, rather unlike, say, Egypt, we just don't know. We, we don't have any of the written evidence. We've got no documents. Um, you just have the things. So you have, to, you have to do this by your own empathy, imagination. How does power work among the human beings? How do these things come to happen? Uh, and that forces, I think, you to think about how all societies work, our society. Um, and that's, that's what I find so wonderful about certain who What is there is marvellous, but you have to bring, you, you have to play your part in finishing this story, in making the story. You are, the, the visitor is the co-author of the story of certain who, every visitor. Uh, it's rather nice to think that I think I was looking through some of the British Museum photograph collection um, where it shows Peggy Piggott, um, John's aunt, actually excavating that brooch 
Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, what a moment in time. One of the things that um, uh, a lot of people in Britain associate you with was a marvellous series you did for the BBC, which took a hundred objects, I think. Yes, <laughs> and uh, bravely you took on the task <laughs> of selecting, uh, or wonderful task of selecting a hundred objects, and in a sense giving your take on what they told us about the past. Um, and it's a wonderful series, and 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 uh, there's a very nice book that goes with it. And we asked you, I asked you before we talked, really, if we could, between us, um, uh, uh, less slightly dramatically wonderful objects, but the, some of the objects we dug up on Time Team. Um, can I ask, have you seen Time Team? Have you seen any Time Teams? And oh, yes, oh, yes. Uh, you don't get, get to work with archaeologists without, without, without being made to watch Time Team and then choosing to watch Time Team. What was your impression of Time Team? What was your first impression of it, having watched one or two of them? Well, of course, the, the first thing is exactly that moment of excitement you were talking about, about discovering the great thing. Um, um, and because I had never studied archaeology or works in, in archaeology. The, the, sheer, the, the sheer fascination of the process of recovering things from the earth. Um, I think for any of you who hasn't done it, and I haven't, um, it, there is something miraculous about that. Um, it's almost like watching a sculpture liberate the form from the stone that he's removing. Uh, slowly this thing emerges. The difference is, of course, that generally the archaeologist doesn't know what is going to be revealed, what's been, but the, that, I think it's fair, I think everybody, it doesn't matter how often you watch it, there's always a shiver of excitement about that. Um, uh, so I think that, that's the key thing, that, because every, every gesture, every action there is about curiosity. It's about wanting to know, wanting to understand. And I, I love that, this physical engagement with making making understanding. Um, we selected a few objects. That's quite apart from what you then said about the objects, of course. Uh, yes, yeah, quite apart from what you then said about the objects, which I also enjoyed very much. But, but it was that, that, was, that was the thrilling thing. Yeah, and 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 that that range of artifacts. I mean, I occasionally think back, and I I did a recent list of about two hundred things we found. Um, I'm not sure how many would eventually end up in somewhere like the British Museum, but because we found them, and and I remember them being dug up. I, I remember the the obvious ones. I remember like a gold coin of Henry V that came out of a, the black goo of a castle moat. Uh, we were spreading mud all over these sheets and we had a, a metal detectorist uh, to go through this material and, and he plucked from out of this mud this astonishing gold coin, a noble, and, and it was as clean and new as the day it was minted. It was an extraordinary thing to appear. Um, not everything we found, we found was in such good condition. Um, but I think we wanted to start, I'm going to try and do this chronologically if I can do it. You suggested a hand axe um, that was found um, at Gray's Inn. Yes. And you, you found this particularly interesting um, because it was found in the 17th century. And it was found with elephant bones. Now, that particular find, what is it that intrigues you about it? It's a, it's a rather beautifully made uh, flint hand axe um, of a very, it's an ordinary sort, but it's rather beautifully made. Um, and what I was fascinated by was, in a sense, what happens after the time team people have got things out of the ground. What are they? Um, and they're not often Henry V coins <laughs> that you can immediately identify. And in the 1670s, when Gray's Inn Road, they find those hand axe and the elephant bones, they have to sort out what they are. They can see their elephant bones, 
And that's, of course, already problematic. Why are the elephants in London? And what is going on? And also, what is this stone tool beside it? And the, what, I, what I found so fascinating is that you can only propose suggestions about what something might be in terms of what you already know, the frameworks of thought that you have. And they had only two things about the past. They had classical history, Greece and Rome, and the Bible. That was the limit of the imagining of the past. So the first idea, of course, was the biblical one. The elephant is the elephant there because it's an elephant that failed to get onto Noah's Ark. Um, and uh, is, is that what happened? Uh, but that's still puzzling, so they're not really convinced. And where does that leave the hand axe? And then they remember that the Emperor Claudius invaded Britain with elephants. And so possibly this was a plucky British uh, soldier fighting against the beastly Roman invader uh, and killing the Roman elephant. And in a sense, those are almost the only things you could think that was until as more stone tools emerged, the whole idea of a stone age beyond biblical or classical history opens up. And that I find really fascinating, that it was those objects and keeping asking those questions that, of course, eventually led to that explosion of time backwards. And the, the part of the fun of the, of, of the of, as, as we all know, of, of archaeological objects is not knowing what they are and having to keep putting up a guess and having the hypothesis knocked down and then trying again. Um, and the grazing hand axe does seem to me to be the perfect example of that. I rather, uh, I remember very well reading an article about hand axes and how across the world at a certain time in the past, these hand axes were all quite similar. It's as though somehow or other they were such an appropriate material and appropriate size technology that everybody in the world at that date was making a not dissimilar object. And I think this article went on to say that our brains are fundamentally have been wired over thousands and thousands of years to bash things out with flint. If you looked inside our cognitive structure, you would find a lot of instructions hidden about how to make a hand. <laughs> uh, that because is, again, there was really a collection like the British Museum, because the, 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 the collection of hand axes does show exactly that, that it's because of the hand axe technology that our ancestors were able to leave Africa and move around the world. I mean, it's the, it's the hand axe that allows us to become a global species. Um, and that, I think, is, is an extraordinarily fascinating thing. And the wonderful, you know this very well, but for me, it was a totally new experience to be able to hold a hand axe and realise that actually it was made from my hand um, and that the person that made it had a hand that functioned exactly like mine. Um, that is, we all, every archaeologist, everybody who knows this, I didn't. And that was very, very exciting. If we move on a little bit historically, I'm still trying to stick to some sort of chronological structure. We're moving gradually towards the Mesolithic, where always traditionally described as hunters in a warmer climate, a sort of rather idyllic. I think we imagine people as being um, maybe a bit like the Native Americans. They haven't settled down yet into terrible things like cities and they're wandering from place to place. Time Team dig, did a dig on the uh, near Bristol on the Seven Estuary there. And we were led to that site because a local group had discovered footprints in the channel at a place called Goldcliff. Subsequently, Victor did a reconstruction drawing of those uh, that scene, the hunters, the everything. And those are one of those finds where somehow you feel a person is saying, yes, I'm here, like the handprints on the cave at Lascaux, 
like the tendency we have to leave a thumbprint behind on a tile. Human beings seem to have this, I'm going to, not intentionally with the footprints, but there's something about those objects that bear the print of man. Exactly. And they do something, those footprints I find completely, completely magical because obviously what aspects of human life survive is so determined by the materials. And I, I, I went through quite a long period of thinking the Anglo-Saxons did nothing but make belt buckles um, because that appeared to be all they were interested in. <laughs> and to be reminded of all the other bits of human activity that which leave no trace is, I think, a very important thing uh, and a difficult thing to imagine because there's no evidence. Um, and those footprints take you so immediately back to that person then, this transient moment of a human life, which is what it all is, but which we normally can never recover. And it was that great leap into the past um, of and walking, you, you were walking beside those people. And that, that, that is, that, it is that power of the, of the object to, take you right back beside the person that made it. I mean, as you look at the thing, knowing whenever it was made, it was made by somebody with a brain like ours and a hand and hands like ours and capable of thinking in the way we're given. And so you can, you should be able to imagine what, what, how they're seeing the world, how they how they view it, what it's like for them to live in this world and those footprints um they're, they're completely trans they're almost literally transporting i'm going to introduce an object which i think you suggested a, a, a british museum object um the folkton drums um that you mentioned and i've seen these things they're just huge spheres of limestone, I think, with with a facial characteristic on them. They have a sort of magical presence. Are those in the BM, and, and what is it about those that, that, that grabs your attention? They, they are in the British Museum, um, and they're, they're, I suppose, like the size of a rather big pork pie. <laughs> they're about the shape of a pork pie, um, or, as it were, a small child's drum, but they're actually more like a pork pie. Um, and the, it's one, it's one of the joys every morning when I went to the prison, I used to try to walk around the galleries just every morning. Um, and try to stop at different things because obviously it's a collection you're never ever going to get to know. Those Folkton drums, they're quite bright white chalk, arrested me. And what I love about them is not just that they are beautifully made, they're carvings with geometric markings and what look like faces on the side of the drum. But nobody knows what they what they're for at all. They the they were found in a tomb which can be dated to around um I think two thousand, two thousand five hundred BC. So roughly the Stonehenge area. Um and they were found in what appears to have been a child's grave. So are they toys that would normally be made of wood and that dis that would normally have disintegrated? that the child was to take with them, or are they something completely different? And again, I, it's that need that every visitor, everybody who looks at this, has to try to complete the story. And here is the evidence, the thing, what we know about it, the story so far. And then we have to imagine why would I make something like this, bury something like this, what sense would it have? And for a long time, I think they were the only things like it that we knew. And then another one was found, I think, in Sussex um, uh, a few years ago, uh, very comparable. So clearly, across England, uh, two and a half thousand, four and a half thousand years ago, people are making these things. Ritual? Are they ritual? Are they to amuse ourselves? Are they for playing? Uh, and that again reminds us that because we. We know that these people would have had rituals, beliefs. They would have had games, music, all the so 
they are people in that sense like us, but it's the unknowability of the folks and drums that, 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 that keeps drawing me back to look at them and think, you know, what was the person thinking when they drew that? Uh, we're, we're going to sort of head our way in a slightly zigzaggy fashion through history, I think, this morning. But um, uh, I was, I'm, I'm trying to get you to the Roman period. But I prefer, <laughs> um, just before we get there, that one of the objects that has always been in my mind, partly because you're in London, BM was in London, and out of the River Thames came an extraordinary series of Iron Age objects. And, and I think I'm thinking of the Battersea Shield, um, yes. which, which did that thing that those artifacts do of showing us the skill of the past and also the creative aesthetic feelings of the people making the objects. What I got very interested in is the Battersea Shield and what I find fascinating is the frequency with which beautiful metal objects are put in water and found in water. And I began to find that almost the most interesting thing. What is it about us that we want to put precious metal objects into water? And it's the same as throwing coins into a fountain, or is it? But uh, when the British Museum, the Roman life, daily life room, we used to have a little fountain People threw coins in. I mean, quite extraordinary. It does seem to be a, almost a compulsion to put precious metal into water. And I was fascinated much later in the, in, in, in the British Museum to discover that in Japan, this great collection of mirrors, of uh, beautifully wrought mirrors, uh, ancient mirrors, uh, were regularly cast into lakes. And that's why they survived that across Europe, um, particularly at the time of the Battersea Shield, you find wonderful metal objects in water, rivers, bogs. And that's what, I, so it raises that fascinating question, why do we take precious things and take them out of use? And why metal into water, which does seem to run very deep in our psyche. Slightly less precious object I'm coming to now. Uh, a couple of things found on a time team find, and, and they, they happen to take your eye in the list I sent you, um, was a Roman die made out of bone. Uh, we found one in Sirencester, the dig at Sirencester, and one on another site. What, what, what is that object to you that you find interesting about it? Well, the fact that we need to play. And we need to distract ourselves, all of us. And there's in every culture you find that. And not so much of it survives. I mean, the human, some of the human activities leave very little trace. Um, sex leaves extraordinarily little trace other than us. Um, uh, food sometimes. Um, but the fact that wherever you are, particularly if you're soldiers, um, you need to play. It, it, it reminded me very much of the... There's a wonderful, wonderful, there's wonderful Assyrian winged bulls in the British Museum, which was at the entrance to the palace to protect the palace, and clearly manned by sentries. And on the, on the plinth below the bull, clearly a very bored sentry on guard duty has scratched out what's effectively that's a noughts and crosses game. <laughs> And there is the board game. And you can so see the board soldiers in ancient Syria, <laughs> nothing more boring than security work, <laughs> playing the game. And the Roman die is the same point. We need to, we need, and we do it with other people. We play, we need to play games. It's part of being alive. And in every culture, looking for that bit, I mean, where are the games and what kind of games? And there's this chance, the die, that we're all you, the game is also, like all games, it's about life. It reminds you that we're not in control. It might interest you to know that we're a, a friend of Time Team, Dr. Kat Jarman, is a Viking specialist, and she's been searching for the overwintering camps of Vikings. 
And one of the key clues she is defining as, as being important is finding Viking gaming pieces mm. where they had camps, they had time to play games and they played a game. And I'm risking my Viking pronunciation here, something like Kanafa Tattle, something like that. And these pieces appear in little isolated groups, but quite concentrated um, and appear to relate to where the Vikings were having camps. You could do the archaeology of gaming as a research project to look for sites. Exactly. exactly. Um, and, uh, and again, the, there's that lovely distinction in games, between games like chess, which are games of skill and where only skill matters, and games of chance, like those with dice. Um, and clearly, we, we all need both. All societies need both and have both. And that also, it's, a, it's a wonderful way of thinking about I love the idea of the Vikings are sitting around as we're playing Monopoly or whatever. <laughs> and also, uh, this reminds me, I think, also at the British Museum. I mean, you know, it would be a joy to go through the endless numbers of these objects with you, but the Lewis Chessman. Of course, that's exactly what was in my mind. And, um, and that, again, is the, is the wonderful thing about the, the role of a museum. Um, you know, when the Lewis Chessmen were found, uh, the, the, the Mount family tried to sell them. And there was, at that stage, no institution in Scotland um, that was available to buy them. Um, which was, and the British Museum bought them very much as you know, the, the last resort to keep them together so that they weren't scattered. They've become, of course, this extraordinary document of Viking civilization um, and links between Norway and Ireland. And, and then some, as you know, when more appeared, um, they were bought by the National Museum of Scotland. So they're divided. Um, what I find fascinating about that and so good about that, what a museum can do, is that there's now an arrangement with Lewis that some of the chessmen will always be on show in Lewis, in the museum there. And some always in London, because they're part of a European story there, not far from the Sutton Hoo, of course, uh, uh, the same kind of narrative. Um, and particularly with that kind of, where you've got lots of objects together, they're also constantly travelling the world. So it is one of those bits of the collection that can be partly shown where it was found and where it has a particular link, partly in the context of the whole European narrative in the British Museum, and then around the world in comparison with other uh, other things. Um, no, they are, they're, they're, well, everybody, everybody knows, everybody loves the Lewis Chessman. And uh, it's interesting because when we were talking earlier, I think you mentioned the the role the BM has and continues to have in both having the objects, but also um, sharing them with where they originally came from. I think you mentioned that in relation to Sutton Hoo. Yes, it's, uh, one, of the, 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 it's one of the great conundrums, great questions always, I think, for uh, uh, the, the British Museum. Its role is to try to tell a, a, a story of global civilizations, so in, in British terms, of course, locating those British objects uh, not only in the British context, but in a much wider one. But they also have a different meaning, a specific meaning uh, in, in a particular site. So one of the very happy developments with Sutton Hoo um, is that some of the Sutton Hoo objects um, that were given to the British Museum by Mrs. Pretty um, are always on show, can be on show at, at, to the Sutton Hoo site, museum. Um, the same with Lewis. Um, and that's something that's been developing, my colleagues have developed. It's also been greatly strengthened because by the Portable Antiquities Scheme, because that wonderful scheme, which <laughs> Tantino knows a great deal about, um, has, I think, really reminded everybody that this is a, a, a national network of enthusiasts and that people everywhere want to see these things and share them. And uh, that, the, 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 if possible, things can stay in the local museum uh, and be shown there. And I think the, the way that habit has moved, the pattern has moved in the last couple of decades entirely, I think, or largely thanks to my colleagues who did the portable antiquity scheme, that the, 
we are now sharing these collections much better than, than before. I'm just going to um, go off on a slight tangent here. About uh, three or four days ago, I was down in the far southwest of England on an Iron Age site. And the local archaeologist produced from a wonderful um, archaeologist caravan um, full of boots and dirty clothes and um, shovels and things like that. The most wonderful piece of Samian ware. Oh. A huge piece of Samian ware. On this piece of Samian ware, there was a wonderful classical figure. It's one of the biggest pieces of Samian ware I've seen. You know, it did that thing of why wouldn't there be a nice piece of Samian ware in the far southwest? You know? Exactly. <laughs> you don't um, expect this to... Um, uh, you don't expect it to appear in this context. And this figure had um, a beautiful classical figure. It had a god in the middle and then a rather, um, frankly, erotic scene, which the Romans seemed to quite enjoy on their pottery. And there so I was... not just the Romans. Just yes, the Romans. <laughs> just the Romans. That's right. There is a book to be written about that, isn't there? <laughs> Um, and, and there I was on a very misty morning in, in, uh, in Cornwall, holding this object in my hands. Uh, it's a site we may be doing some further work on. Um, but to hold an object with such classical references, you talked about classicism, that, that where you can somehow sense the, the, the Roman, the Greek view of the world translated into an object which is then valued and probably curated by um, a family in the far southwest of England. It's, it's one of the glorious things, isn't it, about, that, about the, any sustained archaeological work, that you realise how little isolated, I mean, how much Britain has always been part of this much wider world. And I think it's, and it's very important at the moment when there's so much talk about Britain alone and Britain separate um, uh, to remember that historically Britain has always been part of these networks, absolutely integrated into networks that connect the whole of Europe um, from as far back as we've got objects to show it. And that same in where is precisely the point, isn't it? Um, that uh, what's happening in the southwest of England is directly connected to what's happening and comparable things happening in the eastern Mediterranean or wherever. Um, and that has always been the case. I mean, you see it at Sutton Hoo again and so on. And uh, I think that's one of the great joys of the subject, isn't it? To realise the, 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 the long links that, that, that bind us to, to all, all the rest of the world. Well, I suppose that sort of slightly neatly, conveniently brings us on to the subject of Christianity um, as an influence. Uh, and um, one object, I, can, I have to describe it to you. Um, Mick and I and uh, Teresa and all our friends were on a, an island in Scotland, Mull. And there was an early Christian site there. Um, and we had been digging this site for days uh, in the mud, finding the stonework. And at one point, one of the diggers looked down and there appeared to be something that looked like a kind of impression of a waffle, um, a sort of square block with lots of little squares on it. And she thought it was a footprint and then went back and thought, oh, hang a minute, I'll look and lift it up one arm of a Celtic cross, a Celtic Christian cross. My, on the far outskirts of the world, um, this object, beautifully made, again, carved out of the local stone, part of a huge cross. And, and that's, it, it was partly memorable because of how it was found. Mick was thrilled because he loved the subject. <laughs> but it's that sense of Christianity appearing at the far reaches of the European world, really. Um, well, this, uh, this is where I feel rather um, patriotic, of course. 
the 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 role of Ireland, of course, first, and then Iona, uh, as the preservers of an early Christian tradition, the extraordinary achievement of uh, of those uh, monks through centuries of great instability and real isolation, uh, how they managed to keep that teaching tradition and reflection going and expressing it in objects of elaborate and carefully made beauty um, is one of the great, great cultural achievements of, 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 of Britain and indeed of Europe. And I think we, we all know that from, uh, from, Ireland, from Iona especially, the missionaries from there not only re-Christianized or Christianized uh, the northern half of, the, of our island, um, but then went on, of course, across the whole of northern Europe and uh, right across uh, the Netherlands and Germany. Uh, you find Schottenkirchen, um, which usually is Irish, actually. Um, but uh, that Irish, Scottish, Celtic, Christian tradition um, it, it, I think it's an inspiring story um, because keeping that light burning uh, through the centuries. Um, and then it was a story that was written out of history largely or certainly suppressed by the triumphant Rome that arrived in Canterbury. Um, and uh, I, I think one of the things we need to do when thinking about ourselves in our history is to remember that it was actually Ireland and Scotland that, that kept that flame going um, and, and that the, their achievement has never been properly, I think, acknowledged in the way we learn our history at school, whatever. Um, so uh, 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 I wanted to talk about that object because um, as a, a little um, Celtic flag-waving moment. <laughs> I've got a rather nice not all Vikings, not all Vikings, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got a rather nice book by I think it's Thomas Cahill called something like How the Irish Save Civilization. Exactly. exactly. He, pays, he paints a, a fairly grim picture of Europe going to hell in the handcart, while on the fringes, places like Iona, um, places in Ireland. They were keeping uh, the book, the writings, the scriptures, the learning, the teaching. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a good lesson to remember. It's the, the periphery can rescue the centre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to end the session today by leaping forward um, to a not such happy period in, 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 in European history. Um, and symbolized by a picture that you picked out from the list I gave you, which was an aluminium spitfire pedal, brake pedal, I think, with supermarine written on it that Time Team found uh, from one of the first um, spitfires to be shot down in the Battle of Britain very early on, um, and the first one to crash in France. And what was it about that object that caught your attention? There were a couple of things. Um, it was partly because I had been thinking about Sutton Hoo and 1939 and the way at which in moments of danger, a society needs to reconsider its past, rethink its past, and the past takes on an extraordinary power when your present is under threat. That's one thing the film shows so clearly, but I think it's something clearly everybody felt in 1939. And that moment, of course, again in the film, there are the Spitfires practicing overhead. So it does connect very, it's connected with that, but it's two, two other things. Firstly, it's like those footprints in the Bristol Channel. That pedal was pressed by the young man, he would have been a young man, flying that Spitfire. When you look at that pedal, when you touch it, you are directly with him in the plane, making those decisions, 
And not only does that carry you because it's near enough, carry you to uh, an intense engagement with you know, one young life um, that might still be with it, almost within be within living memory um, that, that that was that was lost. But it's a very it's somehow a more powerful, more direct reminder that all conflict involves individuals making decisions and dying. And I don't find that link nearly so strong when I look at as well, a medieval sword um, or, uh, or, or or a javelin or whatever from, from, from antiquity. Um, it reminds one directly of well, another aspect of human life, because just like faith, just like playing games, war is one of the givens. And you are brought absolutely face to face with the, the with the cost of war in an individual, just as you're brought face to face with what it means to be you know, playing the game or wearing a gold uh, and jewel buckle or whatever. Um, you're, you're there, the thing does it. And that can, and it's also a reminder that even with something as recent as 1940, it's the archaeological remains that are, they have a different kind of power from the written memories or even the film. The thing does something quite different. It takes you there in a different way and it leaves you, I think, unsettled and moved and reflective in, in a way that's much more enduring, actually, than looking at a newsreel uh, or, or even reading a narrative. Neil, that was a, 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 an extremely uh, elegant way of bringing together our subject at the start, Sutton Who, and our Spitfire pedal, and those Spitfires flying over the top of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'd like to thank you for spending a wonderful hour of your time and listening uh, to your comments which as usual I loved your 100 objects series I could listen to it again and again and uh, have you got some plans to do something else like that in the future or where where are you now where where is Neil McGregor at the moment what are your plans uh, for the future do you have something you're interested in uh, well, obviously, like everybody else at the moment, when Neil McGregor is now is at home, <laughs> um, like, like the rest of us. Um, what's taking up a lot of my time at the moment is a project to share museum collections um, between um, London and Berlin and museums in Mexico, India, and in China. Yeah. Because one of the great values, I think, of a collection like the British Museum is that it not only allows you, it forces you to see your national story in the context of a global narrative. You realise your national story can't make sense other, or you won't understand it properly other than the concept of global narrative. Not many museums outside Europe and America have collections of objects that come from all over the world. So at the moment, I'm particularly working with the museum in Mumbai, and they are uh, hoping to present, they're working to present their Indian antiquities, particularly the Indus Valley civilization, um, but also the the, the later story, um, in the context of what's happening at the same time in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, and then later material from Greece and Rome. And that material will be lent long-term by the British Museum. And it should allow, it will allow, the people of Mumbai, the school children, the students, to look at an Indian story constantly in a wider context. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be asked to be an advisor to this. It's being uh, funded very generously by the Getty Museum. And, uh, and so that's my that's my big project at the moment. And I think it's what I hope will emerge from this. I think what we all hope will emerge from this is different kinds of global histories. To date, global histories have been written essentially by people from what we call, in the shorthand called the global north. Um, 
and that's largely because the comparative material is in the global north. This should allow a different global history to be written from Mumbai or from Shanghai or from Mexico City or whatever, a quite different one. And we need more global histories, different ones, starting from somewhere else. So that's my big project at the moment. Excellent. Well, we will keep uh, fascinating because I think often the Indus Valley uh, archaeology and history is something that we know too little of. You know, it's extraordinary period, extraordinary time. I know a tiny bit about it, but not very much. And I think to share that and use the objects and artifacts to tell that story. Final question. Uh, you have time team. You can take them anywhere you like to any site you like. You can have them for a week. They're going to be working for you. Where would you like to take them? Well, I actually would like to take them back to Mull, the, 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 the west coast um, of Scotland, that area, because if they can find things like that cross, um, that, that period is one that, again, is so suffered by not having very many objects. We just don't, there are not enough ways in. And they would know whether that site might be worth exploring, whether other ones that could be explored. But it's that period of British history that I would most like to, I would most like Tainting to find more of and let us all think more about. Neil, thank you very much. Uh, lovely to hear from you, and I wish you best of luck with your projects. We'll keep an interest in those, and hopefully you might come back um, for another session. We'll have a look at some uh, early medieval um, objects uh, in our next list, uh, and I really look forward to talking with you about them. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been wonderful. Great honour to be invited by Time Team, and uh, I'm very conscious we didn't we didn't even get to the Middle Ages, so there's a lot still to talk about. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Neil. We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon and make sure that Time Team comes back again.